Let's bow before the Lord in prayer before we look into his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been able to worship you through song, through prayer, through our giving, through hearing about what you are doing across the globe, around the world. Lord, we pray now that you would help us as we look into your word. We are dependent on you. We are dependent on your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help your word to come across and to, to um, touch us with power. pray that you would help me to speak faithfully this morning. I pray that you would help us all to be able to hear what you have to say to us clearly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My faith has found its resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Those words are precious to us as we sing them today, as we sing them as a congregation, but those words were unknown to the disciples in the upper room on that night before Jesus was arrested on his way to the cross. The disciples, these 11 that he was speaking to, that he was having supper there within that room, were not at rest. The disciples needed a kind of faith that would rest on Christ, on Jesus Christ, but on that night, they weren't there yet. You see, Jesus had not yet atoned for their sins. He, he had said he was going away, but those words only served to confuse the disciples and to stir up trouble for them. And so in John 14, Jesus sets out to untrouble them. And he does that by telling them to rest their faith in him and to trust in the one who would die, yet would be the ever-living one. Those very words are confusing to us. Just think of how confusing they were to these disciples before the cross. He was asking them to trust in the one who would die, yet the one who would be the ever-living one. All that to say that that was the perfect song to lead us into this text. And so if, you, if you're not there yet, turn to John 14, and I want to read for us verses 1 to 7. John 14, 1 to 7. If you're using those Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 901. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word 
of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we know the way? That was a question the disciple named Thomas asked right in the middle there. It was, it was actually part two of his question. But that question is a question about how to get from point A to point B. We want to know the way, Jesus. It's a, it's a question that implies a need for directions. It's a question that implies some confusion about the best way of getting somewhere. We'll be content, Jesus, if, if, if we can just know the way. Well, that question can be it's kind of a small set, a scale, circumstances of life question. We're all going from various point A's to various point B's, whether that be in our travels. I know for us, for our family, this week, we're, Marlene and I were sitting down trying to figure out and plan a possible road trips that we will take, Lord willing, in a couple of months. And we had out our atlas on the table, and we had our maps on the table, and we're just trying to figure out the best way from here to our destination. Or, that question concern, can concern the different stages and progressions of our lives. What's the, what, is, what is the best way to move from, from high school to, into a job? What, what's the best way to move from my vocation into retirement? There's a movement there, and we want to know how to get from one place to another. What's the best way? How can we know the way? But that question, of course, is also a, a grander scale, all-of-life kind of question, isn't it? It's a question of, about traveling to a destination. We're all on our way to somewhere, and whether we believe in life after death or, or life after life or not, we all wonder where we're going and what it'll be like on the way there. What is the way like as we travel to where, from where we're at now toward the end of our lives? That question can cause, of course, no shortage of anxiety. The older we get, the more we start to think about those kinds of questions. How can we know the way? Well, here in John 14, Jesus actually prompts that question. With increasing repetition up to this point, he kept saying these four words to his disciples and to others. I am going away. And he would add to those words something like, where I am going, you cannot come. I am going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus had said those words to the Pharisees, his opposition, the the religious leaders that were in hostility toward Jesus, said that back in John 7 and back in John 8. For instance, John 7, verse 33 and 34, Jesus said then, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Or in John 8, verse 21, he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now the disciples would have been there and would have heard all that, but they knew that Jesus was saying that to the Pharisees as, as a warning, as, as almost as a, a kind of judgment on them for not believing in Jesus. Where I am going, 
you cannot come. And he added to the fact that they would die in their sins. But now, Jesus was saying those very same words, not to people who were hostile toward him, but to them, his, his closest followers. Jesus, by this point, had already departed. He had already left the Pharisees. He had left the crowds. His public ministry was over. Even Judas, one of the twelve, had already left the room by this time. And now it was just Jesus and the eleven. And yet, he says, the exact same thing. Look back at chapter 13, verse 33, just a few verses before I started reading. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so here he's going back to what he said in chapter 7 and chapter 8, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What? I can only imagine they're thinking, the Jews, we can understand, Jesus, but us, us who left everything to follow you? And so Peter says in chapter 13, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus doubles down and says, where I am going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later, afterward. Well, we saw last week how Jesus responded to Peter's objection, predicting that Peter would actually deny Jesus before that very night was over, before the rooster crows. Well, chapter 14 picks up right where that left off. Sometimes these chapter divisions don't happen at the right place. This is probably one of those. You know that chapter divisions in the Bible didn't happen until about somewhere in the 1200s, so like 1,200 years after these things were, were written, and, uh, and mostly they're good, but this wasn't really a good place for a chapter break, I don't think, because it just picks up. Jesus is still in mid-sentence here, and he's still talking about the same sort of thing. There's no doubt the disciples are now totally confused, though, about what Jesus meant. And they're not just confused, they're troubled. Everything together, all these things that Jesus had been talking about his death, the the prediction that, that, that one of the twelve would betray him and another would now deny him, and that they, they couldn't go where he was going, all of that together was troubling their hearts. And Jesus knew it. And so here at the beginning of chapter 14, we see how Jesus reassures his troubled disciples. And it all revolves around this idea of where Jesus is going. They just want to go with him. You can't fault them for that. They're loyal. They've followed him faithfully this far. And that's why they don't understand why they just can't keep following him. They don't understand yet. Here, before the cross and before the resurrection, it's all beyond their, their limited human understanding. But Jesus wants to reassure them. He wants them to know that this is all actually for their good. The fact that he's going where they cannot come is all good. And because it's all good, they ought to trust him. They can put their faith not only in the dying one, but in the ever-living one. So what's good about where Jesus is going? That's what Jesus wants his disciples to know right now. He doesn't expect them to understand everything about his death and, and, and about the cross, but he wants them to understand that he is after their good. What he's about to do, where he's about to go, is for their good. What he's about 
to do should bring them from a place of confusion and trouble to a place of hope and joy and trust. And this word to his disciples should bring us to a place of reassurance that God does all things for the good of his people, for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Are you here today and are maybe troubled? Are you maybe in a place where you don't quite understand what God is up to in your life? Are the circumstances in your life right now such that you feel that you've been a a faithful follower of God, yet it doesn't look to you as if God is in control? It seems actually that everything in your life is spiraling out of control. Do God's ways in your life not make sense to you? Is your heart troubled? Well, it's those kinds of feelings that these 11 disciples were having. They were trying to faithfully follow Jesus, yet their present circumstances, including the fact that their Lord kept saying he was going away and they couldn't come with him, didn't make any sense. And so Jesus enters into their trouble with these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. Their hearts were troubled. Their their faith had not found its resting place. You see that, right? Trouble and, and rest are, are two opposite two opposites, right? They're, they're they're opposite ends of of the emotional spectrum. And so Jesus comes into that trouble and says, Trust God. And when you trust God, you trust me. And when you trust me, I will actually be for you the place where you want to go and the way to get there. I will be the place where you want to go and I will be for you the way to get there. And so Jesus, even though he too is troubled by what lies directly ahead of him, it's said that a couple of times already, that Jesus was troubled in his soul. Yet, he takes time to reassure his disciples here in this upper room just a few hours before he would be betrayed and arrested. How does he do that? How does he speak into their trouble? And how does he speak into our trouble here today? And how is that connected to where he is going? How will his going away help us go from a a place of being troubled, so let's think of that as point A, to a place of being hopeful and reassured and at rest, point B. How can our faith find its resting place? Well, Jesus starts by saying that his going will serve to eventually reunite them with him. The separation will be temporary. It won't be forever. But Jesus has to go away in order to make that possible. His going will serve to prepare point B. Verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And and so Jesus is asking them to trust him. Because he's going away in order to prepare a place for them. It's all good, you see. It's, It's for their advantage. Let not 
your heart be troubled. So what is Jesus talking about? Where is he going and what is he doing? Well, he talks about my father's house and that there are many rooms there. This is obviously talking about heaven. This is that place where where God the Father lives. This is his house. This is where he resides. This is the home of God. And notice that Jesus describes it as a place. Heaven is a real place. Notice the actions that Jesus will do there in verse 3. It's a place to which Jesus will go. It's a place to which Jesus will go, a place from which he will come, and a place to which he will take his followers. It's a place. Heaven is a real place. This is a glimpse into heaven. It's not here in John 14 a detailed glimpse into heaven, like, for instance, Revelation 21, where you can read about its dimensions and its, and its utter beauty and its brightness and its glory. But it is here a glimpse. All it says is that there are many rooms in the Father's house. And by that, I think it just means that there's ample room, there's many rooms, there's room for everyone that Jesus will take into heaven. It's a home with rooms. There's a a sense of intimacy in that glimpse, isn't there? A sense of family. Heaven will be and will feel like a home. It will feel like a place where we will belong. Just saying that song, right? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. There's a sense of, of belonging here. That will be exponentially more of a feeling when we meet with the family of God, the greater family of God in heaven. It'll feel like a home. There have been lots of psychological studies done that confirm that all people want a place to belong. But we don't need studies to confirm that, right? We can all attest to that. We, we feel that desire whenever we're away from, from our earthly home. It might feel good to get away here and there for a vacation or a trip or something, but after we're away for a while, we tend to want to get back to familiar surroundings. That's why we say there's no place like home, right? It's the same from a spiritual perspective, although it's much better. Because even though our earthly homes are, are necessary and are valuable, I mean, we go to El Salvador to build, build homes, build dwelling places for people, and those are necessary. We, we need them. They're for those that don't have homes, it's, it's, it's a welcome sight to have a place to belong. Yet our heavenly home is permanent. They're only temporary. Our heavenly home is permanent. Part of the curse of sin, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, is that the first people were expelled from the presence of God in the garden. But God shows his love by making it possible to go back. And the Bible, if you want to look at it in big picture sort of view, is a book where God chronicles his actions in bringing people back home into the Father's house. As we read his book, he, he whets our appetites with, with images like a, a land and, and a tabernacle and a, and a temple, this place where God resides or where he symbolically resides. And finally, most spectacularly, He gives us a glimpse into or a foretaste of that home in the person of Jesus. But ultimately, he will bring his people back into his very presence in the Father's home. And it's 
Jesus that is the way there. Notice what else it says here about heaven. It says, in heaven we will enjoy perfect fellowship with God. It is the Father's house and his children will will all be there in these many rooms. But the most important part about the Father's house that Jesus sets before his troubled disciples here is that Jesus will be there. Jesus will be there. Jesus comforts them by saying, I go to prepare a place for you. Notice he's going for you. This is for their good. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's the most important glimpse into heaven here. The fact that Jesus will be there and we will be with him. But what is this about going to prepare a place? Does this mean that he is up there right now supplying furniture, getting it ready for occupancy? How is he preparing it? I think his, his prep work, if, he, if we want to talk about it that way, is what he's going to do in the next few hours after he says these things. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Where is he going? Well, he's going to the cross. He's, he's going to his death where he would atone for the sins of many so that they could be reconciled to God and be assured of a place in heaven in his Father's house. He's not preparing a place for us right now. Heaven already existed before Jesus went there. In fact, he came, he, he came from there. He, heaven's already done. His preparation is finished. He, he did the prep work, the necessary work that was still needed to be completed by dying on the cross and by, and be, by being raised from the dead. His death and his resurrection, among other things, prepared a place for the disciples and for us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Christ, the rooms in the Father's house are ready for occupancy, are ready for you. And Jesus promises that he will come again and he will take you there. He will take you to himself that where he is, you may be also. Now, the disciples might not have understood all this there in that room, but Jesus was telling them to trust him. If they were, if they were troubled now, what Jesus was about to do was going to be agonizing for them. And it, and it was going to be infinitely more agonizing for Jesus. But what Jesus was about to do was for their good. It was an act of kindness on Jesus' part. It was an act of supreme kindness and supreme love. He would lay down his life for their sins in order to prepare a place for them. How good is that? And how kind is Jesus to die in the place of sinners? My dear Christian brothers and sisters, if you are troubled today, be reassured. Be encouraged. Jesus went away to die on the cross, but he did that for you so that you would be with Jesus in heaven. If he went to such great lengths, you can trust him with whatever it is that is troubling you now. He knows. He cares. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. And when you know that you have a room waiting for you in heaven, it ought to encourage you to live a godly life right now. Philippians 3.20 
Paul says there our citizenship is in heaven. Is, present tense, is in heaven. And, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. We are citizens of heaven living here on earth in a strange land with all the troubles that come with it. But because our citizenship is already in heaven, we can stand firm in the Lord, the object of our faith. Our faith has found its resting place in the Lord. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I wonder today if you have a home, a place to belong, a place to call home. Not just a home here on earth, but a home when you leave this earth, in God's house. You see, just as Jesus was going away to his death, we will all travel that same path. We will all go away to our deaths, unless, of course, Jesus comes back first. D.L. Moody, the 19th century uh, evangelist and preacher, told a story once about a younger man who found out that he had a, he had just found out that he had a terminal disease and would likely die in short order. And this man had a wife and a four-year-old daughter. That was his family. And, and the man and his wife thought that they'd try to soften the news of his impending death for this little girl, for their daughter. It's too hard for her to hear that, that her daddy was going to die. And so her mom just said, your father is going away. And this little girl turned to her dad in her innocence and says, Papa, have you got a home in the land where you're going? Well, Moody says that that question went deep into this man's soul because he had spent all his energy in, in his life accumulating wealth and, and riches and possessions. In his life, he enjoyed a huge home, but now he was about to go away. You see, we're all going away. That much we know. Friends, do you know if you have a home with God when you die? In order to know that for sure, you have to turn from your sins and you have to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Turn away from your sins in repentance and believe, trust that Jesus died to take the penalty for your sins and you will have a home prepared already for you in heaven. Well, Jesus isn't done yet. In verse 4, Jesus says, And you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus here expected them to know the way. He had already told them that lots of times that he was going. For example, back in chapter 11, he had told them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus had said over and over again that he is the way to the Father's house. But the disciples are so confused by now that none of this was making any sense. He had just said he was going to prepare a place for them. They still couldn't get past the fact that he was going away and that they couldn't follow him. They're troubled and they're confused. But we have to say that they are loyal and they are determined and they are eager and they are willing. We have to give them that. And so one of them, Thomas, says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Or we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Just 
Just give us directions, Lord. We, we need a map. If, if it were today, he would say, drop me a pin. Tell us where you're going and how to get there. But this whole conversation is, at the same time, in the midst of their confusion, is being providentially planned by God for Jesus to say what comes next. And what he would say next would be the answer not only to their uncertainty, but it would be the answer for the great human, let's call it a dilemma, which is how can sinners get to God? That is point A and point B. Point A is our sin and the, and the dreadful prospects of our, of our sin. Point B is God the Father. And the great human impasse is how to get to God. Especially since we know our, our desperately uh, incurable, sinful condition. Talk about a reason for troubled hearts. This is it. And with that now planted in our minds, listen to Jesus' answer to Thomas' question about the way. Verse 6. Verses you know well. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now just think for a minute about what things were like before sin. And we only have one scene of what things were like back then. The location was the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, there was direct communication and direct communion between God and man, and in that sense, there was no separation, we might say, no distance between the creator and the created in the sense of presence. The first humans had access to God's truth. God spoke to them. They communicated with God. And there was life. Genesis 2.7, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So there was a way, there was truth, and there was life. But in Genesis 3, you know the story. The snake comes and, and he casts doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. The man and the woman, the woman listened to the snake. They didn't trust God and thereby dove headlong into sin, infecting the entire human race. And the result is that we, as sons and daughters of Adam, are separated and alienated from God. We became ignorant of the truth, and we were condemned to physical and spiritual death. No way to God, no truth, no eternal life. But now, here comes Jesus and says, I'm the solution to all three. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. It's such a glorious answer to Thomas's question, isn't it? Don't miss it. Jesus Christ alone is the answer to the self-destructive and self-condemning nature of our sin. 
Jesus Christ alone is the answer for how we get from point A to point B. Jesus Christ alone is the answer for how we can be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ alone is the truth of God. He is the full and completely trustworthy revelation of God. And Jesus Christ alone was the eternal life of God. God would raise him from the dead so that we could be raised to eternal life if we are in union with Christ, if we are in Christ, connected to him through his death and through his life. While the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus being exclusive in that last statement? Well, yes, he is. But don't ever think that that's a bad thing. The truth is there would be no coming to the Father had Jesus not gone away to die. There are many ways people try to please God, but none of them do any, uh, any eternal good. So to now have a way to God is supremely glorious. By living a perfect sinless life, Jesus lived the kind of perfect life that God requires of people in order to come into his presence, in order to come to him. Where Adam and Eve listened to the snake, Jesus was tempted too in, in the same way that Adam was. In fact, he was actually tempted by the serpent in the wilderness for a period of 40 days. And he is tempted in every way, even as we are, yet he was without sin. Where Adam failed, Jesus walked right through it without sin. And yet he took the penalty that we deserved. Jesus told Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. When we sin, we should rightly be condemned to eternal death. And yet Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. He would go away to die a sinner's death. I'll say that again. He would go away to die a sinner's death so that we would not have to so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could have eternal life, so that Jesus would come again and take us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. This, my brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. This is why, for those of us who count ourselves as followers of God, our followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, our hearts should not be troubled. We belong to Jesus, and we will be with Jesus, and Jesus will bring us to God Through Jesus' death, verse 7, we know God, and in Jesus we have seen God, and finally, finally, our faith has found the destination. Our faith has found its resting place, and it's in Christ. It's not our own devices, it's not our creeds, it's not in anything other than the ever-living one that our faith can find its resting place. Our Father, we thank you for this most glorious word. Thank you for this good news of the gospel. Our faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. We now trust the ever-living one, his wounds for us shall plead. We need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul 
I came to him. He'll never cast me out. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that because Jesus died to prepare a place for us in your house and that he is the way to you, that we need not fear, we need not doubt, we need not be troubled. And so we pray that you would help us in those times when we do get anxious to rest in the finished work of Christ. And Father, if there are any here who don't know the way, I pray that you would help them, even right now, to see Christ and to come to Christ and to trust Christ as the one who will save them from their sins. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.